So yeah, this time, I don't get it. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to I Don't Get It, a podcast about performance in Edmonton. Uh, I'm Paul. And I'm Fonda. And we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Powered by it. Uh, great. How was your week, Fonda? It was real busy, Paul. <laughs> great. Great <laughs> I'm, news. I'm so glad there's so much to see in Edmonton uh, while the weather is so freaking cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really amp up our game in, in like the desolate months of January and February. There's a there's a true treasure trove of, of options to of, of things to see. Yeah, when you're all sad and your bills from the holidays are coming in mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's nice to see lots of theater. Well, so what was um out of the three things that we saw this week, Paul, what was the one we actually saw together? Ah, we saw a show called Empire of the Sun, which was over at the Citadel Theater. Um, it was uh, writer and performer Tetsuro Shik- Gamatsu's uh, one-man show, uh, sort of exploring his his relationship with his father, um, uh, as well as some some uh, history of, of Japanese culture and and the immigrant experience. Uh, a little bit, a little bit of that in there. It was mostly on him and his father. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, well, I guess I wanted to start by asking you, um, I am not a son nor a father. Okay. So um, how did you feel about this, the, you know, the, the emphasis on the father-son dynamic in this story? Sure. I would say absolutely There's there was uh, a relatable moments. There was relatable concepts. I think my dad is also of a generation where, where the phrase, I love you, is not is more implied than said. Like, I know my dad loves me. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't always say it. Um, and that's one of those things I think in in this that he sort of uh, uh, Shikamatsu is is coming to terms with sort of at the at the end of his father's life, uh, which isn't a spoiler. That's where it begins. Um, yeah. But it's sort of looking at that dynamic and looking at the history of of what his father did and and how they ended up in Canada and 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 the choices his father made and trying to understand that from the vantage point of of the son years years later. Um, yeah, so so part of it was uh, I think there was relatable dynamics in there as a as a son to a father, um, but I almost wanted more of of some of that depth. I wanted uh, uh, some of it felt a little uh, surface level in how he how he approached it and and presented even some of those those stories and those ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about the visuals uh, a little bit as mm-hmm. well because I feel there was some very cool work with video and miniatures. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to give sort of a bit of a frame for the show, I feel that the story really started out with him explaining that he's getting ready for his father's eventual funeral because his father has donated his body to science and hence hasn't actually had a funeral. Um, mm-hmm. But the entire show sort of frames itself about him working himself up to cry right, at the yeah. funeral. Um, and so the the metaphor of crying tears he does use water in the imagery of the show mm-hmm. which was kind of cool um so yeah what did you think about the way that the the visuals came out i mean it's 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 pretty as a one man show it seemed to be a little bit um like tech heavy yeah and i would say that was like a, a neat trick that was really uh, useful to the show and sort of illustrated some of the points in really uh interesting or even poignant ways uh, so uh, Shigematsu was giving his his performance as a performer does, uh, but there was this long table on the on the uh, uh, on the stage with with lights sort of set up all over it, little lights, and then periodically he would go over to a section of it near one of those lights, and um, the screen behind him would turn on, and you'd realize it was either like 
their their family home bathroom mm-hmm. had been sort of made in miniature <laughs> or there was a skate deck, um, you know, a finger skateboard, which I haven't seen uh, actively used in years. <laughs> that was um, a great scene, a conversation between father and son in the driveway two, between two fingers, like mm-hmm. finger people. And one of them was the son on the skateboard, you know, tooling around. And then the dad, It was that was done really well. Mm-hmm. And so a train, a train popped up. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the JR line trains. Wow, yeah. Someone has been traveling. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so there were these little moments of, of illustrating some of the story or maybe some of the, the bigger context of the story that were really uh, cool and really um Effective. Uh, it makes sense why this is a the show is touring to professional theaters mm-hmm. um, uh, across the the country um, to sort of harness that ability to to showcase those uh, production bits. Yeah, um, which yeah, I think really helped um, helped sell the show. Mm-hmm. And in audio terms, he's he's spliced interviews of himself with his own parents, um, talking about um, you know their their lives first moving uh, first from uh, England um, when mm-hmm. his dad was working for BBC Radio, and then finally ended up working for CBC. So they play with the idea of audio a lot as well, and I think that. Um, in particular, uh, Shigematsu's own delivery, his, mm-hmm. his own vocal delivery in the show, I think was very influenced by his radio background. R- right, which um, he talks about a little bit. He, he sort of had, a, had some, some time as a, a broadcaster and an announcer, mm-hmm. uh, much like his father. Yeah, and I, I the one the other metaphor that well or prop really in the show that I kind of thought was interesting was his um his father ended up being a, a working in a mailroom at the CBC and um and he wore these uh, sound uh, sound damping headphones caution that, yellow yeah that were caution yellow hazard um, yellow <laughs> showing like you know basically showing to people that he just didn't want to be interacted with. Yeah, and that was one of that was a great example of like maybe a place that, uh, on one hand, uh, once your father has passed, maybe it's difficult to get these sorts of stories. But that sense um, of um, he went from hosting his own show on the BBC and sort of having um, a voice on the radio and getting to be be that that presence uh, and being sort of reduced in a lot of ways to just working in the mail room and you know mm-hmm. pushing the mail cart. And I think like that was such a a haunting detail for me in this story. That that uh, didn't maybe fully get unpacked, mm-hmm. and I understand that. That's also maybe because Shigematsu perhaps hasn't fully unpacked yet that yet either. Like part of the show was, I think, trying to understand his relationship with his father. I think there was a really um, great moment, is sort of near the end um, uh, of the show, uh, where he talks about his sisters coming in to visit, um, and and their uh, their experience and how they um, show affection for their father that's so different than his. Mm-hmm. Personally, this was the part of the show that affected me the most is um, he, you know, him talking about just seeing his sisters crawl into his father's hospital bed with him um, and just, you know, coo over him and be in, like, you know, uh, be loving and, and charming. And he, he, refer- he refers how they turn into like a basket of kittens, I think, or something, think something like, like that. that yeah. <laughs> um, and it's just and he and he feels this sort of um, strange guilt, I think. Uh, he says something about how, you know, how is it that, um, you know, some cultures can value sons over daughters, seeing the kind of like unconditional love and affection that these his three sisters are showing at that mm-hmm. point. Um, that that totally just kind of like really hit me sitting in the audience that moment. Um, and the the um, 
some of the statements, uh, just knowing a bit about Japanese culture, the the idea when his father did end up kind of getting like getting the demotion, pushing the mail cart, mm-hmm. um, is a huge huge matter to lose face uh, in in Japanese culture. And so, just knowing that his father, seeing that his father got demoted like that, like he. You know, that had to be a huge thing. And I think that there was weight in it in the show, but I don't think that we were actually allowed in enough to feel how heavy Mm. that really was. Um, Yeah, it's one of those shows where, like, and this is strange criticism perhaps, but it could have been longer in the sense of, like, I would have, it was only, it was a 75-minute show. It was very fast. mm -hmm. Um, But I would have taken, gladly, another 15 minutes to really, like, sit in some of those moments and really explore the, the feelings or the ideas behind Things like that or the, the, those more personal uh, effects. Yeah, and maybe it's sort of a reflection on what his dad was really like because he, he brings up these instances where his dad was almost kind of um, glib about really tragic or awful things. Like mm-hmm. there's, the mo- there's the day of the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb, um, and... Uh, it's done beautifully visually. He does it uh, squirting some kind of paint or ink into water. Right. So yeah. it suddenly gets cloudy. And again, the screen pops up in the back and we see this like cloudiness descend. Yeah, you see this and it and it uh, envelops the whole screen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but his father <laughs> refers to it as just kind of like, yeah, it felt a bit weird. It kind, kind of maybe thought it was just something I ate. Right, right, yeah. He, he compares sort of um, the Hiroshima bomb to, uh, to yeah, like indigestion or, or uh, like physical illness. Like, yeah, like food poisoning. <laughs> um, so anyway, well, I get that was um, Empire of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, it runs at the Citadel until February 18th in the club. The club. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to uh, taking right along here because we've got we've seen a lot. So, yes, mm-hmm. right now, Paul, we're going to talk about Alberta Women Entrepreneurs. Cool. Hit me. Yeah. AWE invites you to attend Learning Day on February 20th at the Chateau Lacombe. Learning Day is an event to support women entrepreneurs through skills training and community networking. You can hear inspiring and educational talks from industry experts on topics including HR, social media, e-commerce, among others. Registration is only $129 and podcast listeners get 10% off if you use the promo code podcast at checkout. And you can check our website and show notes for that link to register and for your 10% promo code. Cool. Yeah. All right, Fonda. So that was the thing we saw together. Um, uh, And let's talk about uh, something you saw, uh, a show that perhaps you've seen before. Yeah. So uh, last week we saw um, the whirlwind return of Bears, Matthew McKenzie's Bears, uh, this time at the Backstage Theater at the Arts Barns. Mm -hmm. Uh, This show was done a handful of years ago um, in another space in the Arts Barns, if I recall correctly. Yep, yep. (laughs) Um, This time has, um, other than, uh, save for the starring Sheldon Elter, uh, it has an entirely new cast. Um, I, I believe some rewrites. It even features a different pipeline than the first one. Yeah, yeah, it changes it up, <laughs> keeping keeping modern. Yeah, and so. Um, uh, and and different music as well. The music in this one was all done by uh, Nordine Musani, um, kind of electronic, but also like lots of nature and interesting, cool sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so again, the show uh, is um, Sheldon Elter plays Floyd, uh, Métis patchworker who has been um, injured on the job in some way, and um, eventually, you know, throughout the course of the play, he's. Um, 
he goes through the uh, follows the line of the new pipeline, which is the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline. I believe in the first one it was the Keystone XL Pipeline. Cool. Um, so, anyways, he's following the the projected path of this pipeline and and slowly turning into a bear. Um, Sheldon Elter is an amazing performer, as as always. I completely enjoy watching him i think that this could very easily if they ever really wanted to strip it down and do it as a single one-man show they totally could so so if not a single one-man show what do you what is bears what do we see how is it presented well so floyd is accompanied by a chorus of dancers uh they're and they are animating the landscape around him so they're playing a lot of the wildlife they're playing everything from sort of you know like gophers to butterflies to flowers um and and the river, um, salmon in the river. They're like they're playing pretty much everything that he runs into. Um, the beautiful thing I think about the show is that it really emphasizes uh, the the true ecology and landscape that that the pipeline could affect, will affect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, and also um, in the show this in this version of the show, Christine Sakemo Frederick played Floyd's mother. And so she sort of um, kind of bears witness to his journey and uh, not many lines, just very much a presence on the stage with okay. him. Yeah. Um, and so I, that was kind of an interesting addition. Um, but yeah, overall, a super physical show. Um, I mean, the the language is, is very uh, nature based and metaphor based. Um, uh, but also, I mean... Sheldon Elter is just an, a great physical performer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a big guy, really broad chested, broad shouldered, and and man, can he move along with these nymph like creatures that are accompanying him? <laughs> so is this uh, the show like an example of like the personal as political sort of like it seems like it's it's tied up in the oil sands and the the oil trade, um, but it's also telling this this person's story of their own like transformation and their own change in their own physical landscape. Yeah, it's it's super political, um, and I don't think that there's any they're they're unapologetic about that. Absolutely, right. it's it's just very much so. Like this is exactly what you're affecting, what will happen, um, and you know it's it's amazing to see um, just the the actual range of landscape that they cover in the show even though nothing really nothing on the stage itself essentially changes it's all animated by bodies mm-hmm. um but you know you see floyd doing everything from like uh crawling through a field swimming in a river escaping an avalanche wow. um yeah it's you know he's it, it, it's great it's it's really um I wouldn't classify it necessarily as a dance show. It's definitely physical theater. Um, but, yeah, really rewarding to see just um, uh, see an entire world that just is made up of, of the human form. I thought it was great. Right, right. And that's such an interesting way to sustain a storytelling, especially in something that's sort of like uh, could be a, a one-person show is sort of like told in that way and in, in sort of like describing the actions and, and this sort of solitary journey someone's taking. But that seems like a really interesting way to – animate and unpack the details of that journey and, and the depth of that journey. Yeah, I think what I I think what I mean when I say it could be a one man show is that the language the language is dense enough um that you can see it. You know, you mm. you can feel what the what the um 
the plants and animals look like um, or feel like in the show. Um, but and and the the movers were there. They 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 do enhance that. Um, but I think um, you know if if we're to say performer of the month, uh, sure. <laughs> uh, Is that Shel- the award we're going to give out now? I, I don't know, but it, it seems to be Sheldon Elter month because we're going to see uh, Métis Mutt coming up in a week or mm-hmm. so here as well. Which is his his one-person show. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested to see um, him in that role uh, because it, it, it's an older show that he's written. So, um, yeah, that, that was that was Bears. It has super quick run here. It's going on tour through the rest of the province throughout March and April. Um, so, yeah, we really only got to see it for a few days here. Absolutely. And it was it was previously in Toronto and in some other places. It's been it's been touring around. It's been all over the place. The one thing I will say is that I kind of missed uh, Bryce Kulak as the as the um, Mountie or park ranger. In park the... ranger, musician, yeah, song, yeah. songsmith. I mean, I mean, who doesn't miss Bryce Kulak in Edmonton? But whatever, that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> great. Um, cool. Speaking of personal opinions, podcasts are a great place to share those, uh, Fonda. So let me tell you about something the Alberta Podcast Network is doing. Uh, at albertapodcastnetwork.com, uh, if you've ever wanted to learn how to make a podcast, uh, APN is running a how-to seminar called How to Start a Podcast from Notion to Reality. Uh, it's happening in Calgary on February 25th and in Edmonton on April 7th. So you can check out albertapodcastnetwork.com for more details. Great. And then, uh, Fonda, you saw something with someone else this week. Yes, I did. I went to see the HMS Pinafore, um, Edmonton Opera's re- most recent production, uh, with my good dear friend um, Colleen Anderson Fian, who is an opera buff. An opera aficionado. Yeah. So, um, well, how about I just go check in with her now? Hi everyone. I'm here with Colleen Finn, and we're um, we saw HMS Pinafore last week with Edmonton Opera. So um, thanks for coming in, Colleen. Happy to be here. Actually, I came to your place, so well. <laughs> but thanks for doing this. Um, I brought pastry. Yes, yes. Pastries from Vise for Pies. Everyone in Edmonton, Vise for Pies, try it. <laughs> okay, um, so Colleen, can you give us a little bit of context on um, on your background with opera? Because I have absolutely none. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to attend this performance with you. I have loved opera most of my life. I got to go see Tosca when I was a little girl, at, at uh, also from the Edmonton Opera, and just fell in love instantly. Um, other than that, I studied uh, classical singing for about 10 years, including with at Queen's University and um, in the Glen Gould uh, adjacent program at, at um, in, in Toronto. Um, I, uh, um, I've also studied English history in, in my undergrad, and so this was a perfect intersection of of um, topics for me to discuss with Fonda today. So, yeah. And you've directed opera before, haven't you? Indeed. I was part of the Queen's, uh, opera Com- Queen's Student Opera Company when I was in law school. And I directed and sang um, at the time and uh, learned more about it. And I think I actually directed Jeff Surrett, So, But, you know, he was like doing us a favor. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Surrett was in HMS Pinafore. He played the captain? Indeed he did. And he was excellent. Great. Okay. So, um in the grand scheme of opera, opera is a very old art. Um, so give us a sense of where HMS Pinafore lies in, in sort of like the historical schema of opera. 
For sure. So opera dates back to 13th, 14th century and was originally done. um, It was very sort of monotone with big arching sounds and was often done where the main characters were either gods or kings or emperors and things like that. So opera historically was always done to... um, always about important or or high 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 uh, class people um and it was done to express stories and and songs and things like that so um hms pinafore diverged and then then so through the 13th to the then 19th century um it developed and it became more about um big showstoppers and less about chorus numbers um and so then we arrive at the late uh, 19th century with gilbert and sullivan in london and the um the comic opera period was sort of ha- was happening in London and the HMS Pinafore and Gilbert and Sullivan operas uh, generally belong to the Savoy opera um, genre, which is all sort of based around the Savoy Theatre in London in the late 1800s. Okay, so one of the things that I noticed, I have seen some of those big sort of showstopper operas that you've talked about. I've seen Tosca before um, and, you know, one thing I noticed about this opera was that the the lyrics were it was in English for one, <laughs> um, with also English subtitles, which were challenging to keep up with. Yeah, yeah, kind of odd. But it was, um, I mean, the lyrics were very fast. They seemed to be saying a lot more than they would in sort of like those classical big ass Italian operas. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so opera, comic opera, which is what HMS Pinafore fits into, is distinguished very very significantly from uh, European opera. Opera. And HMS Pinafore is considered an opera that was just on the cusp of musical theater. It, it, it's considered to have influenced modern musical theater, and um, uh, and it, it sort of pokes fun at classic opera because it is um, very verbose and uses language that way. And it does so in order to poke fun at at the characters in the in the opera. Like it's you've got you know Rafe Rackstraw who's using. Um, very, very uh, articulate language. And you've got the Admiral who's making fun of himself by sounding like a simpleton. And and so language is really used effectively in this opera to either poke fun of or elevate various characters, and, and which is very different from um, the uh, European opera that was going on at the time that was just, you know, overly emotional. And um, so that's sort of where you're coming from with that. Um, so give us a sense of the, I mean, of the story of HMS Pinafore. There seems to be a lot of, you know, class struggle. We have our sort of like main uh, characters. I do want to talk about the performances a bit, yeah. but just give us a sense of the, our major plot points we're looking at here. Sure. So HMS Pinafore was written during the reform period in Britain, and at which time the uh, the monarchy was sort of realizing that they can't just keep continue being you know, the big, big, uh, hard monarchy forever. Um, and you have modern um, legislation that came into play. So there's uh, the vote was given to a working class and middle class people. Um, Health care acts were passed for middle class people and, um, and and various things like that. And you have huge industrialization happening at that time. So you've got populations pouring into the cities. And so there's this questioning of, of the upper class and what the class system in England actually should be. And so it's very interesting to to have an opera that's based on elevating a sailor to um, a higher rank um, in a time where we're realizing that you know people deserve rights, which is which is lovely, and and uh, again, rights are great, <laughs> and again very antith- 
identical to historic uh, themes of opera where you've where it's all about um, important people, quote unquote, important people. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Rafe, who are and the captain, yeah. who are our other characters that we're going that we're, you know, rooting for here. <laughs> so the yeah, so you've got a very classic setup in, in Gilbert and Sullivan. You've got the the tenor and the, and the soprano who are uh, Rafe and Josephine, the captain's daughter. Um, and then you've got the bass and the mezzo and the mezzo, which are um, the captain. Oh, did I say the captain before? I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm going to clarify here. The You've got a classic setup in HMS Pinafore where you've got the tenor and the soprano, which are Rafe, the sailor, and Josephine, the captain's daughter. And then you've got who are classically the lovers. The tenor and the, and the soprano are always the lovers. And then you've got the um, the captain and little buttercup who are the the bass and this and the mezzo and they sort of support and move the story forward and so you've got the captain josephine's father and rafe the sailor who are sort of the class that's sort of the class clash right there and then you've got the admiral who comes in um who is uh the captain of the entire navy so he would be the captain's boss and uh and he's proposed to marry josephine so this is a huge bump up for josephine if she were to marry the admiral um and then if she were to marry the sailor in the class system it would be a huge bump down for her and so the the admiral is sort of classically known as fifth business in an opera where he um comes in it's not and he he's a he has his own sort of story going on um and in this opera it's very interesting to see that he's portrayed like a like a like an uh, an imbecile almost like he just sort of stumbles around and is considered considered incompetent and mm-hmm. and um and has some of the funniest material in the opera is that that so that's where the phrase fifth business comes from oh yeah it's an opera phrase yeah holy holy she's <laughs> Oh my gosh, learning new things. Thank you, Ms. Smither. Grade 12 English. <laughs> All right, great. Um, so uh, we've got, yes, uh, we've got these characters. Now, um, I did want to point out that Bridget Ryan plays Ms. Little Buttercup. And she's fantastic. She was absolutely wonderful, hilarious in this role, very saucy, very yeah. sprightly. Um, Glenn Nelson hilariously plays the Admiral. Fantastic. Yeah, and you mentioned when we were just talking a little bit earlier, you mentioned something about some of the lyrics poking a little bit of fun at how this class system is kind of going through a bit of um, revolution. Um, so, w- what was that part in the opera that those lyrics? <laughs> I, I I thought it was really interesting. Well, I I mean, you have the very fact that um, that Glenn Nelson's big song uh, that I was the captain of the king's the king's. Sorry, the the King's Navy. And so, you know, it's just it's a silly rhyme. Like there's no real like there's nothing going on in that song. He's talking about how oh, I was incompetent. I uh, I just sort of stuck around for a while and then they gave me the then they gave me the navy. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there was the whole part that that if you please. Right. Um that's that's kind of what I Oh, yeah. And so there's this. And so the Admiral comes in and he says, we're going to reform the Navy. We're going to be nice to our sailors. So you can still tell them to do whatever you want them to do. But you must say if you please at the end. So, you know, it's this silly business about trying to be nice to the lower classes without really being nice to them. Yeah, without really actually changing anything. You're just adding, um, you know, please. at the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> OK. Um, and now I had to notice that, you know, um, Edmonton Opera, Edmonton Company, Edmonton Chorus, Edmonton Symphony Orchestra was on the stage beautiful set mm-hmm. uh, i love how they kind of built the prow of a ship right onto the jubilee stage I have to say the set was gorgeous what an eye pleaser yeah absolutely beautiful set that was designed by uh camellia Koo. and um one thing i did notice though is that the tenor and the soprano were not local 
Right, yeah. So the tenor, the soprano, and the bar and the bass, a baritone. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, are all uh from abroad, and so this is really classic with operas that you can have the entire cast and the sorry, you have the chorus that's usually locally based, and then you'll have maybe some character, um, ca- characters that are locally based, and then you always have the stars usually travel internationally because these these are special voices. Uh, certainly for me, um, the Ralph. Uh, uh, Rackstra, who's played by um, Adrian. Adrian Kramer. I mean, what a just breathtaking voice. So that's not a voice that just you know bums around and does his thing. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> so, <laughs> are you saying we can't keep talent like that in Edmonton? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that talent like that deserves to be spread around. And so probably I would imagine Adrian Kramer knows um, five or six le- uh, characters in various operas that suit his voice. And so he probably, you know, he didn't pick up HMS Pinafore for the first time three months ago. He's been studying this role probably for years and um, among various other roles. And he would probably arrive in town, you know, a week or two before the show and and already know the role and then be able to step into it, which segue here really impresses me that there was this jazz element added to the opera, which probably the, the main characters would not have studied and wouldn't be prepared for. And so they had to adapt mm-hmm. what they already know um, to, to do that. So not knowing what HMS Pinafore sounds like in its, in its original classical um, uh, in, in, in version, um, so what, how did they sound different? How did those songs change? And was there anything that sort of like really worked or didn't for you? Yeah, so it was interesting infusing it with jazz, which we sort of associate with um, just the, the the style of that of jazz. Um, we sort of associate with breaking down barriers and shaking up the old guard. So it was interesting to see, even though it's a 2030, 20s, 1920s, 1930s genre thing, it was interesting to see it infused into something that was from the 1870s because it sort of has this feeling of shaking it up and making things fun and, and more about middle class um fun so i think that some of the big scenes with the sailors um for me it it actually infusing the jazz quite worked because it made it playful and and the sailors are meant to be playful so you have these big numbers where they're going and and you know the sailors can it it, it's more uh it creates a feeling of fun and, and and frivolity for them i also loved the jazz infusion into to little buttercup's song so bridget ryan did a great job where she sat it sort of sassed up her role a bit more so I, those were some ones I really enjoyed. Um, unfortunately, I thought there were some uh, songs where the infusion of the jazz seemed a bit forced. Um, some of the ballads that are very meaningful and actually the the, the story in there is, is a bit more important than some of the other stuff. I didn't find it totally worked. And so it's unfortunately, I, sat, I found myself sitting there going, oh, they put jazz on this as opposed to just enjoying it. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. It didn't sound it didn't it didn't really like flow as naturally yeah, as you would have. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, I really like the performances um, by Adrian Kramer. I thought he was he was like just a very winsome, um, you know, uh, nice sounding tenor. Um, not that I know much about how that should sound. Um, but there was a little bit about Josephine's character that I just kind of, I don't know, it just didn't, it just didn't speak to me. I was just like, is she supposed to sound nicer? Uh, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. What's, what's, what's the deal with a character like Josephine? Right. I, I would agree. There were moments when you're like, it's not shrill, but it's not like, you know, 
like calming me to, you know, like soothing me and making me feel lovely. So, I mean, to some extent, the the uh, on, the ingenue roles, which are sort of the soprano roles in Gilbert and Sullivan are often written a bit to sound a bit flaky. And I, I only in the sense that they're trying to make the character seem a bit silly. So you're not totally rooting for her. Like if you set up this show, you are actually sort of trying to root for Rafe. Everybody else, and maybe Little Buttercup, but everybody else is kind of superfluous and a bit silly. So, including Josephine. So I would, yeah, I I loved Jeff Surrett's performance. I loved Glenn Nelson's performance. I loved Adrian Kramer's performance. And, um, but I understand the effect of why you make Josephine seem a bit silly. Yeah. I also really appreciated a couple of the performances in the crew. Ryan Parker was sort of one of the one of the people in the crew that kind of rounds everybody up and gets people worked up. He he played a nice narrative role, kind of moved things, scenes along sometimes. Totally. Um, the other one that I really liked, I did not really realize that Dick Deadeye was, was a character. <laughs> but he played the cook, I think, right? Yeah, he was funny. I think he uh, there was a moment where I think maybe things got lost for him, but um, but overall, he was really funny. You always knew. And yeah, he he, he was definitely his own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was played by uh, Dion Mazzaroli, Dick Deadeye, best <laughs> character name in the show. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, yeah, the other thing that happened at the, the evening when we saw HMS Pinafore was uh, Edmonton Opera announced their next season, the 2018-2019 season. Um, so maybe can you give us a little bit of a rundown on, on your thoughts on their choices there? For sure. So next year they are doing La Traviata in October, um, Hansel and Gretel in February, and Cousin Ori in April. Um, so Traviata, classic. Everyone loves this opera. Um, it's uh, it's always a crowd pleaser. Oftentimes opera companies will sort of make their big money on this particular one. Um, so everybody should buy your tickets early for that one because it'll sell out for sure. Um, Hansel and Gretel, one of my actual favorites. It's a bit more modern, so it's a little bit... It's uh, it's not necessarily as melodic as some of the other ones. It comes from the German tradition, sort of out of um, out of uh, Wagner, and it's not Wagner esque, but sort of comes out of that tradition, um, which is uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. I love this opera. It's a bit like you know, it's sort of like eating your vegetables, but it's so worth it. Um, <laughs> the and then we've got Rossini's Count Ori, um, which again, it's Rossini, same same composer as Barber of Seville. Um, and it, it is sung in French, the classic, uh, in the classic tradition. And so, um, this one again will, you may not, it's not like Barbara of Seville where you're going to know all the songs, but it will be very pleasing and I'm sure lovely to, to, to view. All right. Oh, and, um, we're, we, the opera company welcomes back Brian Dietrich to direct. Oh, Brian Dietrich is back. Back from his, like, amazing Berlin adventures every summer. Um, so next up for Edmonton Opera is Don Giovanni. Uh, Super exciting. Okay, why are you excited about Don Giovanni? Oh, well, it's classic. I mean, it's, there's some of the, bi- the some of the best male uh, numbers and, male numbers, some of the best um, uh, songs for men in, in opera are, are in this one. So I'm super excited for this. Can, can you give us an example? <laughs> <laughs> um, Don Giovanni's classic. I don't ha- I don't know the, ni- the name off the top of my head. Um, shoot. 
I'm gonna it's by Mozart (laughs) (laughs) you know what it's very famous and were were you were I to play a song or two from Don Giovanni for you you would know it for sure yeah we probably would Um, so Don Giovanni is April 14th 17th and 20th coming up this spring thanks so much Colleen for a little bit of an opera lesson Um, loved it and I hope that you'll come back uh, and talk about Don Giovanni after we see it thank you so much for having me it was such a pleasure yeah, so that was my chat with uh, Colleen. Finn. Awesome. Yeah, um, and so well, we've we've still got a lot of season left. So what's coming up, Paul? All right, starting off, uh, the aforementioned uh, Métis Mud uh, is happening uh, February thirteenth to March fourth, which is uh, Sheldon's uh, Sheldon Elter's uh, solo show. Yeah. Um, also starting running right now oh, until yeah. February eighteenth is the. Mammoth Chinook series, which includes um, Black Arts Matter and Now Hear This, which is the um, Deaf Arts Festival, and also um, the Expanse Movement Arts Festival, Fringe Theater Adventures, and Workshop West. It's like a whole like melange of like many things. Good use of the word <laughs> melange. Um, when's that happening, Dill? Uh, until February 18th uh, at the Arts Barns and mostly around there, I think. Great. Cool. Uh, after that, uh, we have a show uh, called uh, by the company Momix uh, called uh, Opus Cactus, which is being presented by Alberta Ballet uh, that runs February 21st and 22nd in Edmonton. And also, Fonda and I are hosting a pre-show chat for that show on February 21st. So if you're coming to that... Come a little early and hear us in IRL. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, Also then, next up is a show called You Can't Buy It, But I'll Sell It to You Anyways, Sucka. And it's spelled Sucka, like with a... CKA at oh, yeah. the end. Um, by Montreal's Andrew Tay, part of Mile Zero Dance's Dance Crush series. That's on February 23rd at Spazio Performativo. Uh, also, starting on February 23rd and running to the 25th, we have Intersect, which is the next City Ballet show uh, happening uh, February 23rd to 25th. Yeah, that's a busy weekend. No kidding. <laughs> also, Mamma Mia opens at the Citadel Theater on February 21st. That runs for a while. I don't have the end date on it, but it runs into the middle of March right. sometime. It runs until, you know, ABBA fans trickle, which will never be the case. Yeah. Um, in our hearts, Mamma Mia is running all the time. Uh, then, uh, last but not least, on this current roster of stuff, we have Toronto Dance Theater, uh, February 28th to uh, March 1st. Uh, also, keep your eye on our social media, the I Don't Get It stuff because uh, the Brian Webb Dance Company, who's uh, presenting that, has given us a pair of tickets to give away. So if you want to see some dance for free, uh, keep your eyes on our stuff. Yeah, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and we will be running a contest for those tickets for uh, TDT's House Mix. Cool. That's all for now, folks. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Yeah. We hope that you have a great time watching stuff this next month because there's no shortage of things to see. Yeah, go see some stuff. Bye. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenow.